Uh, those of you who know me, who've been around here any length of time, know that I'm, uh, I'm fascinated by history in particular. Um, and um, uh, so maybe even taking that kind of bend on, on our conversation this morning to say, how did we get to the point in history that we find ourselves today? Uh, a point in history where there's um, a convergence uh, of conversation concerning matters of faith, uh, matters of science, um, and, and matters of, of history. Um, the prophet Isaiah, um, centuries ago, invited us, instructed us, Isaiah chapter 40, verse uh, 26, to lift our eyes and look to the heavens and to ask the question, who created all of this? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name, because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them, referring to the stars, not one of them is missing. How did we get to this point of history? Scholars tell us that it's because of the worldview of Christianity that we are a people who engage in scientific process. Um, that Christianity is unique in the worldviews of our world in its capacity to fulfill um, all ten of the criteria necessary for us to be able to uh, intellectually um, engage in scientific conversation. Pastor and scholar, uh, pastor and author rather, Mark uh, Clark, pastor from Surrey, BC, been referencing his book, uh, the, the Problem of God. Highly commend it. Um, he writes, Christianity offered a number of fundamental variables that laid the groundwork for scientific inquiry. And he's referring to the work of people like Dr. Kenneth Richard Samples. He's a research scholar. And he lists those 10 variables that are necessary in order for anyone to engage in scientific inquiry. The point being that Christianity is a worldview that, uh, that set the stage for scientific inquiry. Um, and only Christianity offers an environment where these 10 variables could be accommodated. So things like this. Um, how we think about the universe. Um, we recognize that it's physical universe, it's distinct, and it's a, an objective reality. Not all worldviews see the world in that way. If you were Buddhist, um, you would understand the world to be effectively a dream, um, that it's not real. Um, Christianity sees that, that there are patterns in nature, um, that the laws of nature exhibit order and pattern and regularity, which invite inquiry. Um, nature's uniformity um, is, is evident. The laws of nature are uniform throughout the physical universe. There's a consistency there uh, which, which invites inquiry. Um, Christians think about the need to understand the universe, that, that because we understand it as having been created by an intelligent God, it is intelligible to us. We can increasingly make inquiry and make sense of the world in which we live. We see the world as a good world. Um, it, it's good, it's valuable, it's, it's worthy of careful understanding and further, understand, uh, further study. Uh, we do not see the world as divine. Um, we see it as an, an objective um, object uh, that we can study, not something that we worship. And, and so systems of thought in the world that would worship things in the created realm uh, would be limited in their ability to inquire after those things without in, encroaching somehow on uh, the divinity of that thing that they're inquiring after. 
We don't go there. It's, we can have objective, rational study. Uh, we can discover and understand. Um, so the point being this, that, that we've been given intelligence by an intelligent creator, and the universe, the universe that he's created is intelligible. We, can, we have hope of achieving this. Um, What's more, God has encouraged us to, um, uh, to examine this evidence. Uh, we, we discover upon inquiry that he seems to have used empirical process in order to create. There's, there's thought, there's methodology, there's sequence to it. We can use that same kind of inquiry to understand the world in which we live ourselves. And in fact, God has told us that we're actually to manage the world in which we live. Uh, the book of Genesis encourages that we would have dominion over nature. Well, that requires understanding that which we're called to manage. And then number 10, uh, God's moral law. There's uh, intellectual virtue um, th th in Christianity that's essential to carrying out inquiry. Uh, there, there's process, there's honesty, there's integrity, that, that all is necessary in order to engage in scientific inquiry. So it's in this sense that we would say that Christianity actually set the stage for scientific discovery. So much so that uh, the whole university movement, such as we know it today, began because of Christians, because of churches. Universities, the university system dates back to the 12th century, and it started because of the, the circumstances I've just described, and Christians saying, we need to understand this. And so uh, universities of Oxford and Cambridge, the University of Paris, were, were started by the church. Um, uh, Harvard, Princeton, Yale, all began as Christian institutions. And universities were charged with the gathering of understanding and then the preservation of that knowledge. And so over the centuries, uh, as we have accumulated knowledge, as we've added to our understanding, well, there have been times when what we've discovered seems to contradict what we have believed. Well, what do we do with, with that? There have been times, in fact, when that inquiry has led people away from God. They have said, this, I no longer have a faith, or maybe didn't have a faith to start with, but it was reason not to have faith. There were always those who said, you don't have to read the data that way. There were always those who would say um, that, 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 that there is another way of thinking about this. But then there were also those who weren't thinking about this, weren't engaging in the conversation. And, and, and so those who do judge those who don't um, as unthinking followers of blind faith. Sometimes that accusation is true. Sometimes it was worthy, uh, fitting. However, so, so beginning last Sunday, attempting to, to demonstrate that we don't have to check our brain at the, at the door in order to be a follower of Jesus, um, we kind of continued in this evidence series looking at our humanity. Um, and, and I argued that our humanity, who you are as a human being, actually points to, suggests that there is a creator. Um, I didn't get put it in this format, but the acronym MAP were effectively my three points. Uh, there is morality, human morality, uh, which is distinct and unique. How is it that we have a sense of right and wrong? Um, uh, natural selection has great difficulty, if not impossible, finds it impossible to explain that. Uh, MAP, um, our anatomy, 
points to God. Things about what it means to have human anatomy that's unique suggests that there's a designer. And then the fact that we are philosophical beings. We are able to think about the world in which we live and and attempt to understand it better um, are are part of what it means to be human and part of what suggests that there's an intelligent designer uh, behind the work that we see. We move from humanity today and we look to the heavens, uh, following Isaiah's encouragement, um, but actually following the science of, of what some have suggested is the oldest of scientific inquiries, and that's the inquiry into the stars, the inquiry into astronomy. Um, all of what I've described, so, so we've got... Um, History changing because of Christianity. We begin to inquire of universities because we believe understanding and knowledge and the gathering and retaining of knowledge is important, shows us something about our world. But people then moving away from God because of the things they found that they didn't understand, that was the common trajectory up until 1929. And everything changed or substantially changed as of 1929. See, up until that point in time, for the previous hundred or more years, uh, the, the reigning sort of scientific way of thinking about our universe was the steady state theory. And the steady state theory stated that uh, everything has always existed. Matter has always existed. And so what we have has come out of uh, just a coalescing, a coming together of matter in such a way that then life eventually formed, it eventually evolved. But in, in 1929, following um, uh, a few years of gazing through his brand spanking new super powerful telescope, um, Edwin Hubble um, discovered something that changed that trajectory of science. He discovered, gazing into the far reaches of the universe, that the universe is expanding. The galaxies are actually moving far further away from one another, and the further out you look, the faster they are actually moving. Which what that What that means is that what is moving away was once near. Um, What is is, is in transit apart was once actually near. This this idea led to what we know as the Big Bang Theory. That actually all of that coming back to some finite point in the past came to a place where it was actually a single atom. And that atom exploded into the the, the planets, the sun, the solar systems, the galaxies that we know. Now, scientists initially rejected the idea of the Big Bang uh, because all all of that matter moving away, um, coming back to a beginning, requires that there must be a beginner. Uh, There must be a cause to that which moves away. We we understand cause and effect. If you have an effect, well, there must be a cause. And and on the other side of the United States, almost at the same time, the physicist Albert Einstein had been developing his theory of relativity. And where Hubble came to this conclusion that the, the universe had a beginning via astronomy, Einstein came to that conclusion through mathematics, through physics. Einstein's theory of relativity envisioned that if there is a mass, if there is a body in the universe, a planet in the universe, it causes space all around that mass to be curved. If you've seen pictures of it, it looks a little bit like a bowling ball sitting on a trampoline. You know, and and in doing calculations concerning the effect that that mass has on space, 
Einstein realized that um, there, there's a... Uh, there's an expanding force that is a little bit stronger than the gravitational force. And when you do the math, it, it resulted in the conclusion that the, the universe is expanding. It's moving outward. And if you go backwards in time, if you follow that back to its genesis, you realize that there was an initial cause. Um, there was an initial start. Now, that didn't fit well at all with the steady state universe theory that was the reigning theory for the, for the universe. And so... He, re he entered a number to his equation initially to compensate for this contradiction. He called it the cosmological constant. And however the heavens, uh, however this was, he, the, cal the calculation worked for him for a time until the heavens continued speaking and demanded to be heard. Hubble continued to do his research uh, over in Pasadena, California, and, and and ultimately, Einstein accepted the invitation to come and to gaze through the, the, uh, the telescope for himself and, and was famously quoted as, as saying, I now see that the, necessary, the necessity of the beginnings of the universe. I'm sorry, that's, I, I shouldn't have even tried the, the accent. <laughs> there he is gazing through the telescope. Um, he would actually later admit that the cosmological constant was the biggest mistake of his career. I mean, this guy's a genius. This guy's a master of thinking. Um, and, and even he makes some mistakes. Um, but Einstein wasn't alone. Um, the vast majority of the scientists um, early in the 1900s uh, were heavily committed to the, the steady state universe. And, and so this idea of, of a big bang was commonly resisted. So Sir Arthur Eddington, he was an astronomer, passed away in 1944. He was quoted as saying, philosophically, the notion of a beginning of the present order is repugnant to me. I should like to find a genuine loophole. I simply do not believe the present order of things started off with a bang. The expanding universe is preposterous. It leaves me cold. Now, there's a few unscientific statements there, a few statements of feeling uh, <laughs> present in there, which is, is just, it's just speaking to the worldview. Uh, Robert Dick, uh, a, a Princeton physicist, was quoted as saying, an infinitely old universe would relieve us of the necessity of understanding the origin of matter at any finite time in the past. So he's referring to the, the, the idea that if the universe is infinite, then, then matter's always existed. We don't need a creator in order to explain what is. Matter, everything can evolve out of matter, but if there's a beginning, if there's a beginning, there's a problem with this. And, and medieval theologians and, and philosophers had, had, had long argued that. They'd recognized that everything that be, began to exist must have a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe must have a cause, and the universe must have a cause that comes from outside of itself, and we call that cause God. Now, that's not to say that, that uh, all scientists would conceive of God in a Judeo-Christian way, um, but as, in terms of a, a primary causer, um, this is what they would be talking about. But, but astronomers were joined with physicists with kind of further scientific inquiry, further questions that stir our thinking. The theoretical developments of Stephen Hawking, a theoretical physicist, very famous, passed away just recently. 1968, Stephen Hawking solved the field equations of general relativity. So he was working with Einstein's work, and he came up with the calculations that demonstrated that Einstein's work was actually true um, and verified it. But the implications of, of that were that as you go back in time, there's a curvature of space 
face that gets infinitely tight. I've got an illustration here um, that shows it. Um, uh, marked over time, uh, going back in time over space, eventually it comes around and around and around it to what he called singularity, uh, which is the, the place of the atom, but actually even more so, it's the place where, of nothing. And, and so what Hawking demonstrated was uh, that the universe evolved out of, came out of, uh, out of nothing, which sounds an awful lot like the, the language we find in Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 1 in particular, where God created ex nihilo. He, he created out of nothing. There was a beginning. Prophet Moses, in his ancient created, uh, create creation narrative, um, he declares there is a God uh, who stands outside of space and time distinct from his creation. Uh, the Apostle Paul, in writing a letter to his uh, protege Titus, Titus chapter 1, verse 2, um, uh, he des describes time itself as having been created. Uh, he, he writes, he said, hello, Titus, uh, and then verse 2, in, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. The, the late agnostic astronomer and NASA scientist Robert Jastrow, um, he wrote in a, a book called God and the Astronomers. He wrote the following. At this moment, it seems as though science will never be able to raise the curtain on the mystery of creation. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the final rock, he's greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. Uh, Award-winning scientist uh, who mapped the human genome, Francis Collins. Um, he, he writes, he, he says, the Big Bang cries out for a divine explanation. He says it forces the conclusion that nature had a def definite beginning. I cannot see how nature could have created itself. Only a supernatural force that is outside of space and time could have done that. But of course, science didn't stop in 1929 or 1965 or, or 1969. Eight um, recent scientific discoveries. Um, 1990s, uh, scientists began to verify uh, that gravitational waves were real, that they were true. Now, this is something that came out of Albert Einstein's um, work, that if there was a, a, a big bang, an explosion that resulted in matter being created, um, the universe as we understand it being present, then there must have been waves that were created by that. In the early 1990s, they believed they started to detect it. It wasn't until 2013, 2014 uh, that scientific papers were being written to say, actually, we've measured them. We know what they are. And so uh, uh, an article in March 2014, Scientific American, reported the following. Physicists have found a long-predicted twist in light from the Big Bang that represents the first images of ripples in the universe called gravitational waves. Researchers announced this today. The finding is direct proof of the theory of inflation, the idea that the universe expanded extremely quickly in the first fraction of a nanosecond after it was born. What's more, the signal is coming through much more strongly than expected, ruling out a large class of inflation models and potentially pointing the way toward new theories of physics, experts say. Our Arno Penzas writes, he says, the best data we have concerning the Big Bang are exactly what I would have predicted had I nothing to go on but the five books of Moses, the Psalms, and the Bible as a whole. 
In other words, what he's saying is that, that what I ought to find if the biblical account of creation is true, to be trusted, is what I find, is what we have found. If you wanted to use scientific language, we would put it in this kind of language. It's a confirmation of a theistic hypothesis. Okay, so if theism and Judeo-Christian view of creation are true, then we have reason to expect evidence of a finite universe. That would be a reasonable expectation. We have evidence of a finite universe. Therefore, we have a reason to think that theism and the Judeo-Christian worldview of creation may be true. Be wary of those who say, this is definitive proof. It's a... it, it points toward points toward the truthfulness of that which we believe. I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. But it's, it's confirmation of a theistic hypothesis. Now there's, there's another piece that comes in here, and that, that's something that scholars call uh, the anthropic principle. The anthropic principle. And, and it's this. It, it, it's been suggested it's the most powerful argument for the existence of God. The principle suggests that the universe is fine-tuned. Fine-tuned, um, the uh, fine-tuned for life, fine-tuned for existence. So the mathematical chances of our universe ever coming into existence are so tiny that they are to the level of the miraculous. But that's not all. Not only are the chances that it came into existence highly, uh, highly improbable, but but the fact that it would come into existence facilitating life. Uh, is even more so. So the chances that all the life-permitting variables needed to line up perfectly to birth our universe with, with such a specific range, uh, the, the, the statistical probabilities are so low that mathematicians tell us that they cry out for an explanation. Uh, the improbability of the existence of our universe begs us to wonder, how did it ever come into existence at all? Scholars tell us that the chance of the universe coming into existence is one chance in 10 to the power of 138. Now, I'm not a mathematician, but I know that's a lot of zeros. And to even put that into, into context, um, uh, consider this. 10 to the power of 17 uh, is our best estimate of the number of seconds in the entire history of the universe. 10 to the power of 70 is the number of atoms in the entire universe. Don't ask me how somebody calculated that. <laughs> We're talking 10 to the power of 138. So, so extremely low possibilities. Renowned scientist Stephen Hawking, speaking about this, he said if the rate of expansion one second after the Big Bang had been smaller by even one part in 100,000 million millionths, the universe would have recollapsed before it ever reached its present size into a hot fireball. The odds, Hawking continuing, the odds against a universe like ours emerging out of something like the Big Bang are enormous. I think there are religious implications. Science has its limits of what it can measure and observe. Now let me say this. I find this fascinating. Uh, I, I could spend hours in, uh, uh, researching and digging into this. I find it, it's, it's informing. I find it's affirming. Uh, like it, it, it strengthens and encourages my faith when I, when I read really smart people like this. Um, and, and we could go on and on. I mean, there's, there's so much more that we could discuss. The, apparently the, the DNA sequence um, betrays all kinds of evidence of intelligent design. 
but we're in a church. Um, my goal this morning is to call you to worship, not call you to understand science better. Um, next Sunday, we're, we're going we're to begin a series talking about how do we pray, how do we talk to a, a, a God like we're describing here and the God like we see described in the pages of Scripture. Uh, we, we can find it fascinating. We can find it informing. I find it affirming of my faith, but I do not find it forming for my faith. Uh, th- this is what I mean. Um, when I was born, uh, I began to explore a relationship with my Creator. And, and eventually I became aware of that relationship. And, and as I grew in an increasing consciousness of that relationship, I grew in my understanding of who my God is, recognizing that I was not responsible for my beginning. Only he was responsible for my genesis. Um, But I am responsible for managing uh, the existence of my life. And and so when he engages in that world in helpful ways, I'm really, really grateful. But my, my faith isn't founded on those interventions. Science may affirm, it may coach my relationship with God, and I can say, thank you, that's really cool. I'm really glad that, that there's some, that affirmation there. Uh, my, I may be able to observe from my own humanity that, that there is evidence that there is a designer, evidence that there is a creator, but ultimately it is. It is the person and the work of Jesus that, that has utterly and eternally established me. We began this series looking at that work. See, there's a problem that happens with the resurrection of Jesus Christ uh, that, that invades everything that we know about the universe and about ourselves. And it changes all that has gone before and it will change everything that comes afterward. The, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the defining moment in time and matter. And he is the irreducible complexity of the universe as far as I'm concerned. God in flesh has stepped into time and space that he spoke into being. And he did so because he loves me. He did so because he loves you. That's why he created in the first place. And that's why he intervened when we threw a wrench in the whole deal. And that's why he invites you to to journey with him. And has left ample evidence of his fingerprints in the realm in which he has created that people that we are without excuse and need to pursue understanding of him. And I say this in part because there are those who would constantly put faith on trial. Uh, if it's true, faith must prove itself to me. Um, And I don't think I've ever quite been at that place of of severe skepticism myself. But I've asked a ton of questions, and I've got to say, I don't have all the answers. I've still got a lot of questions that remain unanswered. But on the other extreme of the, the spectrum are those who would say, look, I can't ask any questions. Like, that is just too dangerous. It's too volatile. I don't... I don't want to have to interact with worldviews that I don't understand, with alternate explanations for our existence. I just, I just want to stay in, I understand. I get why someone would say I want to stay in this safe place. The problem is, A, I think it's unhealthy. 
But B, the world that we've been called to interact with, the world that we've been called to be the hands and feet of Jesus to, uh, the world where, where we are called to make disciples, uh, teaching them to obey God and follow in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we best accomplish this mission when we are prepared to engage in the thought and the conversations that are party to the world we find ourselves in. Whether we're on another part of the world in a totally different culture or we're dealing with our part of the world and living in our culture. Um, I want to introduce you to someone who has done, as best I can understand it, a spectacular job of engaging our world in a really intelligent and helpful way. Uh, Dr. Hugh Ross is a PhD in astrophysics, uh, runs an organization called reasons.org. You can find him there. But listen to uh, the next few minutes as he tells a bit of his story. I think you'll find it insightful and helpful. I was born in Montreal. My father had a very successful engineering business there, uh, but he had an unscrupulous financial partner who basically ran off with all the resources of the company. And in one day, my father had to lay off 40 employees, dozens of engineers. And uh, with the last few dollars he had, he took our family out of Montreal and moved us to Vancouver. He couldn't find work because even though he had all these engineers working for him, he didn't have any formal education. And so we had to resettle in Vancouver. We settled in the poorest neighborhood in Vancouver. But it turned out to be a blessing in disguise because I'm on the autistic spectrum. I was not talking. I had very poor motor skills. I couldn't hold a pencil or a pen. And uh, all my parents' friends had diagnosed me as mentally retarded. I would have been put in a special school if we'd stayed in Montreal. But we had settled in this immigrant neighborhood of Vancouver. Uh, people from all over the world, refugees. And they were like me. They weren't speaking English. They were learning a new language. So I kind of fit in. But I tell you, I almost failed grade one because I couldn't prove that I could read. I couldn't prove that I could do mathematics because I couldn't hold a pencil. And, uh, but it was a teacher that held me after school one day and said, you don't have to talk. I'm just going to ask you questions, nod your head or shake your head. She figured out even though I wasn't talking, I could read. She put me into the second grade. And I don't know what it's like here in the US, but in Canada, they seat you in the classroom according to your academic standing. And so I was in the last chair in grade two. Uh, but I kind of figured out what was going on, and I said, I better learn how to talk. And so I would go home and practice holding a pencil for hours so I could actually make the letters and numbers. And within the grade two, I was in the first chair. Now, also at seven years of age, I started talking and I began to ask questions. I remember one night I had a conversation with my parents. Are the stars hot? And they said, son, yes, they are hot. I said, why are they hot? And they said, you better go to the library. So they gave me bus fare. I went all by myself to the Vancouver Public Library, which had a four million volume set. And I came home with five uh, books on astronomy and physics. In fact, that happened every weekend. I would come home with another set of uh, books. So astronomy captured me and fascinated me ever since I was seven. I knew that was going to be my future career, uh, literally from that point uh, forward. But it wasn't enough for me to study astronomy. I wanted to do astronomy. And so in our neighborhood, there were a lot of drunks. And so I would go around collecting empty beer bottles. They were worth one and a half cents each. And uh, soda pop bottles were worth two cents. 
So for seven years, I collected beer bottles and soft drink bottles until I had enough money to buy a telescope mirror and some metal parts. And because my dad was a machinist, he helped me build a telescope. And so from the age of 15 onwards, I had this telescope and I used it uh, to do a research study on variable stars. I joined the uh, Royal Astronomical Society of Canada and uh, they made me the uh, director of observations at age 16. And that required me giving lectures at the university, so I started giving lectures. And that helped me with my autism, being able to communicate uh, with people. And, uh, but age 16 is also when I'd spent uh, a long study on cosmology, the origin and structure of the universe, and recognize that the Big Bang explanation really was fitting the observations. And so, with this Big Bang, that means there's a beginning. If there's a beginning, there's got to be a beginner. So at age 16, I realized there had to be some kind of God behind the universe. So what did I do? I began to read the great philosophers. Started off with Immanuel Kant, René Descartes, but quickly discovered that their ideas about the universe were not comporting with their observations. So I began to look in other sources for insight about this God that was behind the heavens. So I remember looking at the, the Hindu Vedas, but they were speaking about multiple beginnings for the universe rather than just one. And uh, the idea of uh, the entropy in the universe wasn't fitting what they were saying. And in the wrong time scale in the universe. Uh, the high school I went to was mostly Asians, uh, refugees from Asia, a lot of Buddhists. So I checked out the Buddhist commentaries, uh, basically saying the same thing as Hindus about the universe, checked out Islam, found that the accounts they had of uh, creation were contradicting one another. Finally, I did check out the Bible. Now, what I told you earlier, I didn't get to know Christians till I was 27. I actually got to see two from 30 feet away when I was 11 years of age. They were Gideons that came into our public school. And this is the Gideon Bible I got when I was 11. But I didn't touch it until I was 17. And when I began to go through it, I realize this book is really different. Uh, it's clear, it's direct, it's not repetitive. Uh, it's not you know, this appeal to intellectual snobbery. And after studying it for 18 months, I realized I couldn't find a single provable or error contradiction in this book. I found things I didn't understand, but I could not discover any provable error or contradiction, unlike what I found in these other sources. At the same time, I discovered this book in many places was predicting future scientific discoveries. Uh, things like the universe having a space-time beginning, expansion of the universe under constant laws of physics, where one is a pervasive law of decay, which implied that we must live in a universe that gets progressively colder and colder with respect to time. At Genesis 1, I realized here's all these events of creation. They're all correctly described. They're all in the correct chronological sequence also discovered this book accurately predicted future historical events. And I remember one night at age 19 calculating the probability that these statements about future science and history could have been recorded by people who were not inspired by the one who's in control of history and who created the universe, and recognize that this book had a higher degree of reliability than laws of physics that we trust with our lives literally every minute of the day. And so August 6, 1964, I began praying as I looked over this Gideon Bible. 
and realize if I make a commitment of my life to Jesus Christ, if I sign my name in the back of this Gideon Bible, I'm committing myself to share my Christian faith with others. And I realized what kind of attack I would come under if I did that. So I literally prayed for about a five-hour period. But at 1.05 in the morning, I signed my name in the back of this Gideon Bible. I I don't care what kind of persecution or attack I face. I'm going to be a witness for Christ. A few days later, my best friend and lab partner, John Sampson, who later became the chairman of the physics department at the University of Alberta, he came up to me early one afternoon and said, Hugh, I need to talk to somebody. I need to talk to somebody about God. Do you know anybody in this campus that knows anything about God? And I says, well, I just discovered him a few weeks ago. And so we wound up having about a four-hour conversation that afternoon. That led me to recognize Ephesians 2.10, how that uh, God prepares good works in advance for us to do. He's the one that paves the way and opens the door. You can find more of Hugh's research and interaction with modern uh, current scientific discoveries on reasons.org. He and another group of and a group of scientists comment there. Um, He did what Isaiah encouraged us to do, and that is lift our eyes to the heavens and ask the question: Who created all this? Where did it come from? Uh, And who is the one who is behind uh, the ordering of the starry host, calling each one out by name? Because of his great power and his mighty strength, not one of them is missing. The universe points to a creator. Our humanity points to a creator. But most substantially, Jesus' words, his life, and then most profoundly, his death, burial, and resurrection call for our complete attention, call for us to order our lives with utter devotion around who he is and what he's done. And in this turning to the Lord, in this turning to Jesus, we are saved. So how have we arrived at this point in history? I mean, we could make all kinds of observations, but ultimately it's this. We've arrived at this point in history because God loves you. Because he loves you. He created He has superintended. He has intervened. And we live in in such an amazing day when, in addition to all the other things, there's advanced scientific discoveries that continue to say there is a God. The writer Paul in in Romans chapter 1 says, what is seen is enough evidence for every one of us created human beings to attend to that question intelligently. In response, there's really only one thing that we can do, and that is the giving of ourselves to him, which another word for that is worship. It's worship. I'm going to invite the worship team to come, but let me read from the writings of, uh, of John the Apostle in Revelation chapter 21, verse 5. He says, He who was seated on the throne, he's referring to Jesus, said, I am making everything new. What has a beginning apparently will have an end. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha. I am the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God and he will be my son.
Let's stand together and speak to him in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for that invitation that you would be our God, that you would give yourself to us and that we would be your children, that we would be those who would have the privilege of responding to all that you are with all that we have and are and have become. Would you continue to visit with us here this morning? Awaken thought, awaken imagination, awaken the experience of you, O God. We pray in the name of Jesus.